0: Welcome to Restoration Church. Pastor Rachel here. We are going through the summer of Psalms, and today we're going to talk about Psalm 50. Now, the Psalms have various authors, but it is thought that the author of this particular psalm was Asaph. He was a prominent Levite singer in David's court. He was from the tribe of Levi. And he is the ancestor of the sons of Asaph, one of the great family guilds of temple musicians. Now, one of the things I love about God is that he created an entire tribe of people who were just dedicated to beauty and truth and goodness inside the temple. You know, these, this tribe of Levi, they weren't allowed to go to war because I believe this is not something God told me, but that it would sear their soul to have to participate in the, the violence. That would have come around the tribal warfare of that time. And, and so Asaph was part of that tribe of Levi, set apart by God for the temple. And they would be able to craftsmen, artisans, they would all sorts of things around the temple, as well as priests and singers so now this could either be Asaph directly or it could be one of his descendants because the language would have been similar of the family of Asaph. Now in Second Chronicles twenty nine thirty, we we see King Hezekiah and his officials order the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. He is called the seer. Now seer is simply one who sees. A biblical understanding of seer is someone who sees with spiritual eyes, often someone who sees dreams or visions and then interprets the meaning of those in ways that point to God. And Asaph was that. Now we have other seers in the Bible. We have Daniel who was given visions and able to interpret visions. We have Joseph. We have John who wrote the book of Revelation. Now Asaph It is thought, wrote 12 Psalms. He wrote this one first, would have been Psalm 50, and then he wrote Psalms 73 through 83. Now as we frame these out, we know there's five books of the Psalms, and this would have been book two from Psalms 42 through 72. Many scholars would have called this the Solomon era of the Psalms, the God going before us era of the Psalms, or some people might say this is the Exodus piece of the Psalms. It speaks to Israel's ruin and redemption, and it's thought it was written probably around 8th century BC. Now, the type of psalm it is, is a psalm of instruction, but also kind of a caution and a bit of of a rebuke, And, and the question is, can we praise him in rebuke? Now, psalms are often something I go to for comfort, And when I need a a positive and encouragement, this is not that psalm. This is a little bit darker. This is a little bit like a like a discipline. But here's the overreaching theme: God does not need us. We need him. But he desires to be in holy relationship with us. Praise God. So I'm just gonna start here. I'm gonna go through. Parts of Psalm 50. And then we're going to talk a little bit about what we read. So if you want to, uh, the NRSV you can follow along we'll start Psalm 50 verse 1 the mighty one God the Lord speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion the perfection of beauty God shines forth our God comes and does not keep silent before him is a devouring fire and a mighty tempest all around him he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. God as judge. You see, in verse 1, he describes himself in a threefold way. Now, in our English version, it says the mighty one, God, and the Lord. But in Hebrew, here's how that would have looked. El Elohim and Jehovah. El would have been the mighty one, the all-powerful one, the one of authority and strength. And then he, he he goes on to say Elohim. I am Elohim, the one of majesty, of greatness, the supreme one, sovereign over all else, God. And then we have Jehovah, the God of mercy, the one who graciously enters into full understanding of his people's needs, the Lord. Isn't that beautiful that God defines himself with power and majesty, but then he surrounds that with mercy. The mercy that Jesus brought through his death on the cross, the reconciliation, the restoration that is happening even now. So yes, God is mighty. Yes, he's actually angry, we'll find out. And yet he understands and he is merciful and calls us to account. Now, note that the judge in this passage comes not from Sinai, where the law was given, and you would think of a more judgment-type place, but from Zion, which is Jerusalem, which represents mercy and redemption and grace. So, yes, God is angry, and yes, God is merciful. Now, some scholars will point to Psalm 50 as pointing to the second coming judgment. I don't know. I'm not that... Smart to know all the differences, but it does seem that there is sort of a now and not yet thing going on here because he talks about the rising of the sun is daily and it is now, it's not in the future. And so, very often in scripture, it can have dualistic meanings like that it is the now and it is also what has not yet occurred. So, our God comes, He is with us now, we are His people that He is gathering always like a mother gathering her children. It's a beautiful picture. Come, children, he says. Now in verse 3, we see fire and wind, and these are themes throughout Scripture that we need to pay attention to. Fire purifies. It burns away trash. There's a holy fire, right? The Scripture talks about kind of a trial by fire, being refined by fire. So it made me think of these forest-prescribed fires or burns. You know, it's this controlled application of fire by a team of experts under very specific weather conditions, and it restores the health to the ecosystems that depend on fire. And I think there's a lot of spiritual application there is that we too must submit to prescribed fires that just gets rid of, the word in the Bible is dross, just the, the stuff, just the junk in our life that we let accumulate in our souls and in our spirits. And it's, it's actually kind of impeding our growth. We're not as healthy because we're not letting God burn that away. And so as his people, we have to submit to that holy fire that purifying fire that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then he also talks about the wind or the tempest. And that's a whole different kind of power, right? Fire is powerful, but so is wind. And in Kansas, we know tornadoes. It can take something so small and so innocuous and turn it into a weapon of destruction. Flying debris causes most deaths and injuries, not the actual storm itself. It's what gathers around it. See, wind itself is invisible. The only way we even know about a tornado is it it has this condensation funnel, and it's made up of water droplets, but more importantly, the dust and debris starts going in it, and that's what we see. And those pieces of debris become very dangerous. The Holy Spirit throughout Scripture is often depicted as wind or breath. The day of Pentecost in Acts 2 has this mighty rushing wind, empowering for the work ahead. The Holy Spirit is empowering through his breath, through the wind. He's taking something that's not very powerful, stirring it up in our souls so that we can be empowered to take the good news, to live out the good news, to share the good news of Jesus. Can you even imagine what the church would look like if we collectively submitted to this work of his holy, purifying fire and this tempestuous wind this empowering wind god help us to be that church moving on to verse 7 here oh my people and i will speak O israel i will testify against you i am god your god not for your sacrifices do i rebuke you your burnt offerings are continually before me i will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your Folds, for every wild animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the air, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all that is in it is mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. You see, God desires more than the outward sacrifice. Over and over and over in Scripture, we see where he's calling us beyond the outward sacrifice. He's always looking to our heart and how we live out of that heart within our context that he has placed us. Ray Stedman says we have wonderful nouns, joy, peace, faith, redemption, salvation, justification. Oh, these nouns, but the verbs The verbs, loving, forgiving, healing, restoring, that is where we are weak, are we not? See, going to church, being a good person, it's not enough. God is calling his people to an inward surrender, an inward sacrifice, the kind that cost us something. Sacrifice isn't sacrifice if it doesn't cost you something. And it cost us transformation. It cost us laying down our will, laying down what we want so that we can live unto what God wants it's not our will but God's even Jesus surrendered to God's will while he was here on earth over and over and over and that might be surrender in a lot of different ways the sacrifice might come in time or money or pride or comfort or a multitude of things but the point is what does it mean to sacrifice inwardly as opposed to outwardly It is much different than just going through the motions of what it is to be a good person as far as you can understand it. It's about literally saying, this is not my life to live. It's yours, God. Show me each day how to live. This day is yours. All that I have is yours. Guide me into understanding. Verse 15, call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. You make friends with a thief when you see one and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your kin. You slander your own mother's child. These things you have done, and I have been silent, and you thought that I was just like yourself. See, his definition of wicked here is just basically no restraint, no self-regulation. They're not able to control themselves. They're chasing sin, whether it's adulterers or thieves or deceit, lies, or treating their own families unjustly and they kind of all break down into just I picked these four kind of common very current kind of kind of things that we say number one just do you boo and that's just undisciplined you do what you feel like doing because you can do you boo and God never calls us to be undisciplined do you know why because just being me can often hurt other people and most of the the laws in the scripture are about protecting us from each other because we hurt one another. Left to our own devices, undisciplined, unrestrained, not self-regulated, we hurt others. Yeah, I've always said sin is basically selfishness. It's getting whatever I want and it doesn't matter who I hurt to get it. And at the core of all sin is that kind of attitude that, that I'm going to get what I want no matter what it costs anybody else. Number two, they were attracted to darkness, people who were not about the Father's business. He says, you know, that they're chasing after thievery. They're, they're like when they see someone doing something wrong, they're joining in instead of stopping the behavior. Jim Rome. Ron has a a saying, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that. Who are the five people that you spend the most time with? You know, scripture has something similar. You are known by the company that you keep. And it doesn't mean that we can't befriend and be in relationship with all kinds of people. But if we're consistently spending a lot of time with these five people, we are being shaped and shifted by that relationship in good ways and bad ways you know I read something recently same thing with exercise if your friends exercise you tend to exercise if your friends drink a lot you tend to drink I mean that is just the way it is we are with our friends doing the things that we have in common doing the things that we have in common and so the Israelites God is calling them and saying hey you're chasing darkness number three just tell your truth right You know, so you give your mouth free reign for evil, your tongue frames deceit. you even sit and speak against your own family. But we say this, just tell your truth, be true to yourself, say whatever comes to mind, regardless of just how just or how loving or how true it is. Just tell your truth. But here's the problem. I don't always know the truth. Because what I want isn't always the truth. I, too, have this tension between the the sin nature and the spirit person in me, right? And there's always this tension, and I'm always having to sit with discernment and hold things out to God and say, hey, what's real here? And so I have to, you know, be in scripture. I have to be with the people of God. I have to be sensitive and attuned to the Holy Spirit that is guiding me all the time, always sifting through to see what's true and what's not. And praise God god we have the ability to do that but we, but we really have to be intentional about that and then number four worst of all you have formed god in your image they said this because god was silent you thought that i was one just like yourself they thought god was okay with everything they thought he was blessing the ways that they were going in right because he hadn't done anything about it yet because they were in their mind getting away with it. Therefore, they must be just like God. We think God is just like us because we have, he hasn't reacted yet to our evil. And we do it. I'm not saying just the Israelites because we are the Israelites. How many ways do we form God in our own image, in our lives? You know, How do we get his stamp of approval on our personalities, on our wants, on our desires, Right? in our churches, in our communities, in our families. We do this all the time. We make him small like us. Think about that for just a moment. What is just one or two ways that you might be guilty of forming God in your image instead of being conformed to his image? And so finishing up here, but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God. Or I will tear you apart and there will be no one to deliver. Those who bring thanksgiving as their sacrifice honor me. To those who go the right way, I will show the salvation of God. Thanksgiving is key here. Can you be a person of authentic thanksgiving? A person who sees God in everything, who thanks God for everything, including the people in your life, including creation, including even the hard parts of your life. Can you be a person who authentically sits in gratefulness and thanksgiving to God, your maker, and allow your feet, your hands, your eyes, your ears, your heart to run towards evil doing? I don't believe so. Why would I want to do anything to hurt the name of God who has done so much for me, who has blessed me in so many ways? It wouldn't make sense. I would want to do nothing to bring shame on his name. Will a thankful person forget God from whom all blessings flow? And why does God specifically require a sacrifice of thanksgiving here? What does that even look like? And how is that the counter narrative to the verses where he talks about you hate discipline you make friends with a thief you keep company with adulterers you give your mouth free reign for evil your tongue is deceitful you sit and speak against your kin because if you're sitting in gratefulness and thanksgiving you would receive the discipline you would know that it's for your good and you'd say thanks God I needed that Because you wouldn't want to go steal something that isn't yours. You've already received so much. Why would you take from somebody else something that's not yours, whether that's adultery or thievery? And we wouldn't want to speak poorly of our family because God knows that's an iron sharpening iron situation. There's no doubt. And families can be very complicated. And yet they're a gift from God. He has placed us in the family that he did for reasons. And so we have to sit with a thankful heart for that. Even if it's the kind of thankful that says, I I don't always get it, and this is really hard and painful sometimes, but I'm going to thank you for allowing me to be born into this family in this time. We look for God in all these places. We have this. We've been talking here about the with God life. And that is the answer here. Where is God already moving? Where is he already? And how can we partner with what he's already doing? It's a beautiful way to look at the world. And it's a way to be grateful that you can know that whatever space you're going in, he's already been there. He's there right now and he's moving and he's stirring and his spirit is moving. So as we sit there and receive this psalm, in its disciplinary tone, but also as a reminder to be thankful at all times, to remember that our lives are not our own, he allows us to partner with him. He doesn't need us. He didn't need their sacrifices, but he allows us to partner with him in so many ways that mean something to us. Those rituals of sacrifice meant everything to the Israeli people. Everything. And he allowed them to partner in those ways so they could feel and see the tangible expression of partnership. And yet he's reminding them, and yet I don't need that. I want to be in relationship with you. It's a beautiful picture. Let's pray. God, have mercy on us. Purify us by your holy fire. Empower us by your Holy Spirit so that we may turn from our wicked ways. Give us a heart of thanksgiving that we may never forget from whom all blessings flow. Give us the courage to live out your salvation within our families, our communities, our nation, and our world. God, we so desire to be a testimony of the transformative power of a with God life, surrendered to all that is true and beautiful and good. God have mercy on us.